Well, good morning. How's everybody today? It's good to see everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm the pastor of Hope Assembly. And uh, what a powerful thing for two churches in the same community to come together and worship Jesus together. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that, I mean, isn't that what the church is about, right? Uh, we have a saying at our church that, it, uh, that um, being the church far outweighs doing church. That being the church, for, and this is what being the church is about, that anywhere, anytime we can gather together with believers, love Jesus, worship Jesus, talk about Jesus, and it's good news. Amen? Well, I want to thank you all for having us, for having our church Hope Assembly here with you guys, and uh, it's just a blessing to be here. Chad, I consider Chad to be a great friend. He's uh, one of the first people, Chad and Bryn both, but Chad was one of the first people that I met um, as, as far as ministry when I moved to Wilsonville just, just under two years ago, hanging out in a Starbucks, which is what pastors do. <laughs> we drink coffee all day in Starbucks. It's just what we do. And so I was hanging out in Starbucks, and um, we happened to overhear each other and struck up a conversation and began to talk and uh, talk about what God's doing, why were we here, and he was talking much about Creekside Bible Church, and I was talking to him about Hope Assembly and how God had moved us here into Wilsonville, and, and we just had this great conversation. We played golf together, and in the conversations, we found out that really that we only have one major problem, doctrinally speaking, and that is this. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. We put those aside, though, for the greater cause of Christ. And so, yeah. And so, um, so we're good. And just in case you're wondering, I am DVR in the game, so I don't need any updates during the service. Praise God. We did get a whooping from the Dallas Cowboys. But anyways, God's good. Uh, I'm thankful for Chad and Bryn and just who they are. We pray for your church regularly. We have a midweek service where we pray and uh, we find ourselves praying regularly for Creekside and for Chad and for Bryn and, and for what God's doing uh, here in, these, in, in you guys. So thank you for having us with you. Amen? Amen. Today we're going to actually continue our series that we've been in on the Beatitudes. I know you guys have been in a series about giving and greed and all of those kind of things, and it may tie in a little bit. But we're going to continue our series on the Beatitudes, and it wouldn't be fair for me to jump into part five of the Beatitudes without giving you a quick synopsis of one, two, three, and four. So bear with me for a moment when I give us just a quick synopsis of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you probably know this. This is Jesus' most famous sermon that he gave. Um, Jesus wasn't known so much for his sermons or his preaching. He was known more for his living. But there were times where he would actually preach sermons, and this is one of those times. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't actually title the sermon. (laughs) We call it the Sermon on the Mount simply because he sat down on a mountainside and began to teach the people that had gathered. There were his disciples, and there was a greater context of people, Greeks, Gentiles, Jews, Romans, you name it, that were in earshot of what Jesus was teaching. We consider the Beatitudes to be really kind of the manifesto of the new kingdom that Jesus came to establish. It's kind of, this is the way the kingdom of God operates and functions. And what's interesting is the Beatitudes aren't meant to be Um, imperatives. You must do these things. They're intended to be indicatives. This is what's indicative of a believer in the kingdom of God. Everybody follow me on that? So Jesus wasn't commanding be poor in spirit. Jesus was saying people who are poor in spirit, that's an indicative nature or characteristic of someone who is in the kingdom of God. So they're not demands or commands per se. They're what the nature of the kingdom looks like. So we began to walk through these things, and they really, as you walk through the Beatitudes, they build on each other. There's a process, and Jesus started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, and for they shall inherit the earth, or for theirs is the kingdom of God, rather. 
And, and we taught that the, the poor in spirit or poverty of spirit is really uh, presents a proper perspective of ourselves within the kingdom of God. And what do we mean by that? We mean this, that in ourselves we're broken and bankrupt people. That's what it means by poor in spirit. We're broken, bankrupt, and of ourselves we can do nothing in regards to righteousness. Everybody follow me on that? I'm a participatory preacher. Everybody follow me on that? Nothing that we can do. In ourselves, we are absolutely bankrupt. And he's saying, look, blessed are the poor. And and here's what's interesting also about the Beatitudes. They seem to be paradoxical. They seem to be apparent contradictions, right? Because nobody really says blessed and poor in the same context, right? Blessed are the poor. We don't usually use those terms. But Jesus was using them very specifically because in the context of the people that he came to reach, you and I included, uh, the society didn't look at poverty as being blessed, not even poverty of spirit. Why? Because people were trying to elevate themselves spiritually, naturally, you name it. They were trying to rise to the top. Sound familiar? Trying to climb the corporate ladder, if you will, climb the spiritual ladder. And Jesus said, no, the blessing is not in being these great people. The blessing is in poverty of spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on from that. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we see first that we're bankrupt, we're broken people in need of a savior. And it moves us into that next moment where we begin to mourn the fact that we have been separated from God because of our sin. God didn't move, we moved, right? God hasn't changed Same yesterday, today, and forever. Same loving, beautiful, gracious God, wonderful God. He didn't change, but because of sinfulness, our sinfulness, we have been separated from God. And so when we recognize that we're bankrupt and that we're broken and in ourselves we can do nothing, it presents to us an opportunity to mourn our separation from God. And when we mourn our sinful state, he can come and comfort us. Amen? My friend Justin, who's sitting on the front row, he actually preached that sermon at our church, and he talked about that there's two ditches on either side of the road of mourning, that we can get so caught up in mourning our own own sin that we get caught up in self-loathing, or we can get so caught up in mourning the sin of the world, they're so bad, they're such great sinners that we become self-righteous and we look down upon the world. We have to hold both of those two things in tension together, realizing that we are sinful and that the world is sinful and the only solution is Jesus Christ. Amen? And that in Christ, he comforts us when we mourn our sinful state and the sinful state of our world. We moved on to uh, week three. This is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we talked about the fact that meekness does not equal weakness. Amen? Most of the time, we don't want to be like, you know, characteristically speaking, we don't like, oh, that's a wonderful dude. He's so meek. Right? Like, What? What are you saying? Are you saying I'm weak? But weakness doesn't equal meekness. But weakness or meekness equals completeness in Christ. That when we're meek, what we understand is that our identity, our nature is grounded in Jesus Christ. And because it's grounded in Jesus Christ, we don't have to present ourselves. We don't have to put on facades to be somebody great or big or awesome or whatever you want to call it. We can just rest in who Christ has made us, who Christ has called us to be. It's good news. Amen. And so we, we realize that meekness doesn't equal weakness, but it's completeness in Jesus Christ, and our identity is locked in Jesus Christ. Those first three Beatitudes, interestingly so, are a process of emptying ourselves of ourselves. 
So you read through those first three Beatitudes, and it's all about a removing of who we were, an emptying ourselves of ourselves. How many know that we get in our own way too often, right? We're our own worst enemy, right? And so it's this process of emptying ourselves of ourselves, and then you turn a corner into the fourth Beatitude, which is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And all of a sudden, once we've emptied ourselves of ourselves, it presents this beautiful opportunity for us to long crave, which is what hunger and thirst means, to long and crave for righteousness. What righteousness? Not our self-righteousness, but the righteousness that can be found in Christ alone. And when we long and crave for Christ and his righteousness, the Bible promises that we will be filled. So now the new nature begins to take over our life. Why? We realize we were broken. We realize we were bankrupt. We begin to mourn that sinful state that we were in. We saw that Jesus comes to comfort us. As he comes to comfort us, we begin to have an identity in Christ. And as we have an identity in Christ, we begin to long, hunger, thirst, crave for his righteousness, for who he is. And he comes and he fills us and he makes us new. Isn't that beautiful? That's a synopsis of four weeks right there. Four weeks and four minutes. And what happens in the next three Beatitudes, we're going to hit the fifth one this morning. What happens in the next three Beatitudes is really the result of or the fruit of this feeling of righteousness, this feeling of Christ that we have in our life, the result or the fruit of righteousness now in our life. And and so as we move on, it talks about, we'll talk about today that um, blessed are the merciful, Next week, we're going to talk about blessed are the pure in heart. And then next week, we're going to talk about um, blessed are the peacemakers. Those three beatitudes are really the fruit of emptying ourselves and now being filled with the new nature in Christ. And so the result of Christ now being the center of our lives produces in us mercifulness, produces in us a pure heart, produces in us the peace of God or the ability to be peacemakers with others. Amen? So today, let's jump into the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. If you don't, we'll have it on the screens here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. When you get there, say amen. Those are the people who don't have Bibles. They're looking at the screen. I got, I got you. Okay to have a little bit of fun, yeah? Just church. Praise God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed is this idea of this favored state. I know you guys have been doing a series on uh, greed and giving all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting that oftentimes in the church when we talk about being blessed, we don't go to the Beatitudes, which is where Jesus emphasized over and over again, this is what the blessed life looks like, Right? This is what the blessed, like, oftentimes we move to all kinds of ideas. I I heard Chad was talking about the prosperity gospel the other day. Um, You know, we move into those ideas, but that prosperity gospel idea and that kind of idea of blessing isn't isn't what you find in the manifesto that Jesus gives us about being blessed or what the blessed life looks like. The blessed life to Jesus looks like being poor in spirit. The blessed life to Jesus looks like mourning our sinfulness. The blessed life to Jesus looks like uh, people who are meek and who long and hunger and crave for righteousness. The blessed life for Jesus looks like people who are merciful, merciful people. And here's, have you ever played the game of mercy? 
When I was growing up, we used to play this stupid game. And I've come to find out, the more stories I tell about myself, we played a lot of stupid games. I mean, it seems like every game was a stupid game. But my my dad and I, I grew up with two brothers, one older, one younger. I'm a middle child, in case you couldn't tell already. And um, we played this game of mercy. And the game of mercy is the dumbest game ever. It's where you interlock hands, right, with this, with the other person. Both hands are interlocked. And it's basically you try to leverage your will on the other person. You try to put them in so much pain that they cry mercy. They give up, right? And sometimes I wonder if in the church we kind of get this image of God, that God is leveraging over us trying to get us to cry out mercy. That sometimes when we preach these really intense messages, and sometimes they need to be preached, but we preach these really intense, we paint this picture of God as like he's this judgmental, angry, distant, cosmic being just waiting for us to do something wrong so that he can leverage on to us and make us beg, cry for mercy. And can I tell you something? That's not the God that we serve. He's not up there trying to leverage and enforce and push us down so that we realize how small we are. He's secure in his bigness. Amen? He's secure in his omnipresence and his omnipotence. He's secure in those things. And so he's not trying to to leverage up on top of us. He's got all the leverage he needs. But sometimes I think that we, we think about God and mercy in particular in those measures that, that we have to beg and cry out for mercy. I also was thinking about, you know, any, any of you in here play sports or you have kids that play sports. They've instituted this new thing recently called the mercy rule. I, I'm not a fan of it. I'm a very competitive person. I think you just put the points on the board. I mean, it just is what it is. If you don't like it, get better. No, I'm just kidding. We got a little intense in here for a minute. <laughs> that guy's a jerk. But they, they, what they did was, they, like, you can't just blow these guys. They can't make them feel bad about themselves. So we have to institute this mercy. We have to have some mercy on the people and don't just run up the score on them. And these are kind of the ways that we think in terms of mercy. We think in kind of these natural terms of mercy. Jesus says, the manifesto of the kingdom, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, this is no new thing in the kingdom of God. This is actually the nature of God that Jesus is revealing to the people that are there. He's he's telling them, he's explaining to them the kingdom of God operates according to the character and nature of God. And the character of nature in God is that God is merciful. He's a mercy-driven God. It's good news. Psalm 103 Verse 8, it says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, listen to this, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. This is the God that we serve. And Jesus is not contradicting God. Sometimes people will think, well, Jesus is contradicting. He's throwing away all the Old Testament stuff where God is judgmental and I'll kill you all type deal, right? And we get this picture of God. No, no, Old Testament, New Testament, God was always merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Same yesterday, today, and forever. God has always been. Now, it took some time and God's... uh, you know, strategy of working things out to send Christ into the earth at the perfect time and the perfect moment to send the, the God child into the earth for redemption and all that kind of stuff and things happened. But we can't paint a picture of a God who is angry 
and uh, a God who is judging and a God who is condemning because Christ doesn't fit in that picture. And all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about a love story, and Christ is the central character of that love story. It's all about a Redeemer. It's all about a, a, a Savior to come. Doing okay? Matter of fact, Jesus said this when he challenged the Pharisees. He said to the Pharisees, you're searching the Scriptures, and, and you're hoping that in searching the Scriptures, which Scriptures did they have? They had the Pentateuch. They had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's like you're searching those scriptures, hoping to find salvation. All the while, those scriptures are pointing back to me. This is Jesus speaking. They're pointing back to me, yet you're rejecting me. I'm here. The salvation that those scriptures speak of, I'm here, but you're rejecting me. So Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to a redeemer because a God is, our God is a lover. Our God is merciful. Our God is slow to anger. Our God is abounding in steadfast love towards us. It's good news. Blessed are the merciful. Merciful is a, is a characteristic of the kingdom of God. It's a characteristic of our God. When you think about it, the opposite of mercy is oftentimes justice, right? Justice. Justice equals getting what we deserve. So we've seen this before in the natural. Somebody does something wrong, and then justice was served, right? Justice was served. And a lot of times, we, I'm this way, we long for justice to be served. I'm a justice-driven guy sometimes. So mercy can be difficult for me because I like justice, right? I like to see people get what they had coming to them. And that's not necessarily the kingdom of God. I'm a work in progress just like you. Amen. But that's what justice is, getting what they deserve. Well, they got what they deserve. They had it coming to them. They made the bed, they're going to have to lay in it, right? They're going to have to sleep in it. But here's what mercy is. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. And then grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Y'all follow me? Justice, we get what we deserve. Mercy, we don't get what we deserve. Grace, we get what we don't deserve. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive or obtain mercy. Now, in the Old Testament, I want to touch just briefly, because in the Old Testament, there's some shadows of this concept that Jesus is talking about in this manifesto of the kingdom, this beatitude, blessed are the merciful. There's some shadows, and in in probably the best shadow, there's many of them, probably the best shadow that I uh, look at in the Old Testament is the Ark of the Covenant, which was a representation of the presence of God in the midst of God's people, Right? The Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of the tabernacle, the centerpiece of God's people. And the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box overlaid with gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was the tablets of stone, the golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, those three things. And what sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, many of you probably know this, was a solid gold uh, lid, if you will, solid gold with two cherubim, both with their wings outstretched and their faces looking towards the center of this solid gold lid. And that was called the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat. And it was the place where, in the Old Testament, when the high priest would go in and he would make sacrifice for the sins of the people, he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. 
And so when God came to dwell in their midst and speak to the, to the high priest, to speak to the people, when there was blood, the presence of God came because there was a sacrifice that stayed the judgment of God. Everybody doing okay? So the blood was sprinkled, the presence of God would come, and it would rest upon the blood on the mercy seat. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ was coming to do. And you needed the mercy seat because if you didn't have the mercy seat, if you removed the lid from the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat and the blood, the sacrifice, the Bible says there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. You remove those things and you look into the Ark of the Covenant, you have the written word, you have the spoken word, and you have the anointing of God, which is what the three things represent. The written word of God, that's the, that's the tablets of stone, the spoken word of God, that's the manna, the fresh daily bread from God. You have Aaron's rod that budded, oftentimes represents the anointing that God puts on our life. And when you look at those things, the children of Israel violated every single one of them. They couldn't keep the law. They didn't follow the rhema word of God. Even when God spoke to them, they had just audibly spoke to them. They had a hard time even following that. They didn't live in the anointing that God had called them to live in. So they violated all of them. So what happens when you violate everything in the box? Judgment. Justice. Get what you deserve. But when they put the mercy seat and they sprinkled the blood, the sacrifice of an innocent animal, then what happens? God shows up and speaks to them. Old Testament shadow. Matter of fact, the New Testament talks about the fact that Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word, and that big word just simply means that Jesus became the mercy seat for our sins. That Jesus himself is now the mercy seat in our hearts, that when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see the written word. He doesn't see the spoken word. He doesn't see the anointing. He doesn't see the violations that we have in all of those things of which all of us have violated, right? Or all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He doesn't see those things. What he sees is he sees Christ in our heart. He sees the mercy seat. He sees the blood sacrifice of his son that covers us. And because it covers us, we receive the mercy of God instead of the judgment of God. We doing okay? Blessed are the merciful. I'm trying to say this and set it up in a way that we understand this is the nature of God. This is the, this is the result or the fruit of the righteousness of Christ in our life. This isn't something that we have to work up. This is not uh, an imperative. It's not, I commandeth thee, because God speaks in King James, I commandeth thee, be thou merciful. It's something that flows out of the righteousness of Christ in our life, that when we have Christ as the centerpiece of our hearts, mercifulness flows doesn't mean that we'll always be merciful in every situation. Come on now. Because <laughs> if that's the case, I'm done. But it's a nature and a heart towards mercifulness. Everybody doing okay so far? I know Chad's listening. Chad, are we doing okay? Here's a, some definitions and some synonyms, if you will, of mercy in the Bible. Mercy is such a complex idea in the Scripture that the one word mercy isn't enough to describe what mercy means. And so these are some synonyms that the Bible uses in regards to mercy. Kindness, which is what? One of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5. Kindness, loving kindness, goodness, grace, favor, pity, compassion, Steadfast love. These are synonyms that the Bible uses to help try to create some boundaries and some definition to the idea of mercy. 
When we talk about the mercy of God, we're talking about his kindness. You know, the Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness that leads us to repent. We used to sing that song. It's your kindness, Lord, leads us to repentance. Your favor, Lord. Did you guys sing that song? Okay, just me. His loving kindness, his goodness, his grace, his favor, his pity, his compassion, his steadfast love towards us. Mercy. The Greek word for mercy has its root in the Hebrew word that means this, listen to this, to get inside someone's skin. So the Greek word for mercy has this kind of Hebrew root that means to get inside someone else's skin. So when I'm, and I'm going to be merciful, what does it mean? I have to see it from their perspective. I get inside of their skin. I see what they're going through. I feel what they feel before I leverage my judgment, before I level my condemnation on them, I get into their skin. And what did Jesus do? He's the God-man, right? We're coming up on Christmas. It's all about the incarnation. It's all about Jesus putting on our skin, putting on flesh and becoming one of us. It's mind-blowing to think that he who knew no sin became sin so that we, who were sinners, could become the righteousness in Christ. Mind-blowing. The mercy of God. He put on literally our skin so that he could walk among us. God with us. Emmanuel. God incarnate. Walk among us. Why? It was his mercy. Mercifulness is a spontaneous, we talk about how it works in us. Mercifulness is a spontaneous outflow of a heart that is captivated by and in love with the mercy of God. We talk about this indicative of being in the kingdom. Mercifulness is this spontaneous outflow. Notice it's not a work of the flesh. It's not, I got to really try hard today to be merciful. You know how it becomes an overflow? When we are caught up and in love with the mercy of God. When we're overwhelmed with God's mercy towards us, the overflow of that, the fruit of that, the natural result of being captured by God's love and God's mercy towards us is what? We become merciful towards others. We recognize the need to give mercy because we have received such great mercy. Amen? If you're taking notes, I always do this. Every message, I try to give one big idea. Like, this is the big, this is the main idea. Big idea. So write this down if you're taking notes. Mercifulness distinguishes the righteous from the religious. Mercifulness distinguishes the righteous from the religious. I'm going to share with you a text this morning, a main text. It kind of, Jesus is teaching, it kind of separates these two ideas of righteous and religious people. Both of these people called Jesus Lord. Both of these people were concerned about at least the appearance, if not the actuality of godliness and righteousness. The big difference between righteous people and religious people is righteous people rest in Christ. Religious people rest in their own righteousness. Rest in the the things that they do 
in hopes that that will give them or, or gain them some sort of uh, positive benefit in the kingdom of God. Okay? So when I'm talking religious, I'm talking that mentality, self-righteous. We look at, today when we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people who killed Jesus, rejected Jesus, they were people who had an outward appearance of godliness, but inside they were dead. That's what religion will do. It will give you an appearance of godliness, but you will be dead on the inside. Jesus didn't come for that, right? Jesus came for life. And what's that life? That's the righteousness in Christ. So mercifulness distinguishes the righteous from the religious. A.W. Pink said this, The more conscious I am of my indebtedness to divine grace, the more mercifully I shall act toward those who wrong, injure, and hate me. The more conscious I am of my indebtedness to divine grace, the more mercifully I shall act towards those who wrong, injure, and hate me. So, big question, what does it look like to be merciful? I mean, if it says to us, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive or obtain mercy, what does it look like to be merciful people if we're functioning as people of God and the righteousness of Christ has filled us and we're living out of that, what does it look like to live a merciful life? Well, if you, if you still have your Bibles open, turn to Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to read a big section of text here and then we're going to break it down. Is that all right? I always like to read the Bible. I feel like sometimes I'm not a very good preacher, but if I read the Bible, it's going to be okay. <laughs> all right? We just read the Bible. Was it good? I don't know, but we read the Bible, so we should be okay. Matthew chapter 25 and starting in verse 31, many people understand this or they've labeled this as the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's probably some familiar text here. Here's what it says, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, it says, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and, but the goats on the left, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Remember that blessed are the merciful, right? Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, why are they blessed? Why can they come? Word four tells us why, right? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Notice, they're labeled as the righteous. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Be great if it ended there, but it doesn't end there. It goes on and he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it into one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a pretty powerful, strong text. Where we want to focus our hearts, though, is this idea that mercifulness distinguishes the righteous from the religious. And here we have these two ideas that Jesus lines out. He says, look, there's going to come a day where, the, where Jesus will come and he will separate them into two groups, the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the religious, if you will. And it's interesting, I was doing some study, and I don't, I don't farm and I don't do cattle herding or anything like that. I'm not a farm boy, so I don't know much about sheep or goats, okay? I did some Googling. And there's some things about sheep and goats that are inherently different. From a distance, sheep and goats look very similar. From a distance, if you saw them on a hillside, most people, especially people like me, would have no idea what's a sheep and what's a goat. You know, they even make the same noise. I think one of them goes, ba, and the other one goes, ma. From a distance, you just hear, ah. You wouldn't know. But it's when you begin to work with them, when you get up close to them, you begin to notice differences in their features, their external features. But really, when you begin to work with them, you notice differences in their temperaments. Sheep are a little bit more docile. Sheep are a little bit more willing to follow the shepherd, to be led, right? Sheep like to lie down in green pastures and by still waters are easily spooked. They like to be nurtured and cared for and directed. Goats, not so much. Goats like to wander. Goats like to, you know, pick and choose what they're going to eat. They'll eat anything if you let them. They'll just eat whatever. Kill them, but they're going to eat it anyways. Right? And goats are stubborn. They don't want to be led. They don't want to be moved into, they, they hate that kind of thing. They're kind of their own animal, like I'm my own boss, I'll do what I want to do, right? But sheep are not that way. Sheep are like, no, lead me, direct me, tell me where you want me to go. If you set me here, more than likely I'm going to stay here and I'm going to graze here. And I might die here once I finish grazing this spot. And if there's no more food, I'm going to stay here and die. Because you put me here and this is where I'm at, (laughs) right? Again, I'm not an expert on sheep and goats, but it's just kind of what I wikipedia It's interesting that sheep and goats from a distance look the same, much like wheat and tares from a distance look the same. And it's not until you get to the internal nature of the wheat and tares that you realize that one is actually beneficial, one has fruit, and the other one does not. And Jesus tells this, this, some believe a parable, other people believe that he's prophetically speaking towards the end day, regardless Jesus speaks about these two ideas of sheep and goats. And I, I found it interesting, some of you older people in here, like myself, will know that uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, Keith Green was a big musical guy in the Christian world, right? And he was kind of this prophetic musician, he's a super intense dude, play the piano and just like yell at you. Like that's, that was music to him. One of his most famous songs is called The Sheep and the Goats, and I think it's interesting to call it his song because really he just recites what I just read to you. It's not really his song. It's scripture. He's just reciting it with piano. 
And he's intensely, you can YouTube it if you want, he's intensely declaring this deal. And he gets to the end, and here's what he says at the end, which is his own words, not the words found in the scripture. And he says this, and my friends, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this scripture, is what they did and didn't do. And of course, he says that with some intense emphasis. The only difference is between what they did and they didn't do, and I would venture to say that Keith missed the mark just a little bit on that. Although the scripture does talk about what they did and didn't do, that's not the most important. The most important was what was going on the inside of these people. That's what dictated what they did or didn't do. That's what the righteous and the religious comes into play here because the righteous, what's going on the inside is Christ, him crucified, the mercy that we've received from Christ. And the religious, what's going on the inside is what can I do to be a better Christian? What can I do to move up in the kingdom of God? What can I do in my own righteousness to be godly? And there's a dependence in the goats oftentimes on their self and there's a dependence on the sheep, or the, of the sheep, on the shepherd. We're doing okay? Sheep and goat. Mercifulness distinguishes between the righteous and the religious. And when the fruit of mercifulness takes place and when it shows up in our life, we begin to look like these people that Jesus referenced, these sheep that have their heart secured in the righteousness of Christ. Three things that these sheep do. I'm going to go through them really quickly. I'm running out of time. Number one, that we see these sheep. These sheep are compassionate. These people who are righteous, merciful people who are flowing out of the righteousness of Christ are compassionate people. We say compassionate. It's not my strong suit. Compassion, it's not my strong suit. I'm, I'm allowing Jesus to work on me more and more. My natural propensity is not compassion. I'm a middle child. I mean, bear with me. It's not compassion. I, no. It's not. It's other than compassion. But this is what the, the natural fruit of mercifulness is compassionate. Compassionate means that you have a deep awareness of the suffering of another coupled with a wish or a desire to relieve that. So we talk about compassion. It's not just, oh, poor, poor, poor guy. No, it's this deep awareness of their suffering. But it's also coupled with this desire, this longing to help relieve that suffering. So we read through what Jesus said about these people. I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. We see this overarching idea of compassion that you could see the need and they had this longing to go meet the need that they saw. And when we're merciful people, when we live out of the Beatitudes, when we live out of the fact that Jesus is transforming us and making us more like him, mercifulness is a natural um, outflow, a natural overflow of us being so caught up. God saw our great need. God had compassion on our great need. And he didn't just sit in heaven and say, oh, pity those poor children. They're broken, they're lost, like sheep without a shepherd. They wander. He moved on that compassion. We look at Jesus. Jesus is the epitome, if you will, of the shepherd, the good shepherd, the epitome of who Jesus called sheep here in this, in this text. Jesus is the image of that. Jesus is compassion. Jesus is the, the epitome of compassion, right? 
the epitome of compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, here's Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, everywhere he went, had compassion on people. He had compassion because they were hungry. He had compassion because they were sick. He had compassion because they were broken, because they were alone, because they were abandoned, because they were outcasts. Jesus was compassionate. That's something that happens in us when Jesus becomes the center of our heart, center of our life. We become compassionate people. Mercifulness distinguishes us as righteous rather than religious. The second thing that I see, not only are they compassionate, have this deep awareness of the suffering of the people around them, longing to relieve it, we see that they are charitable. Generous in donations or gifts to relieve the needs of the indigent, ill, or helpless persons. Charitable. Now this goes a little bit with the series you guys have been on. About money and giving and greed and all that, all that stuff that's going on. Mercifulness, there's a charitableness within mercifulness. That when we look at these people, that Jesus, they were charitable. It says when they were hungry, what do they do? Well, if you're hungry, I'm going to give you something to eat. If you're thirsty, let me give you something to drink. You have no clothes? Let me take care of that. They, they were charitable. They were willing to give of their resources to help those who were in need. What did Jesus do? Jesus was charitable. Jesus was the essence of charity, right? Matter of fact, I mean, the probably most well-known scripture in all of the Bible, by Christians and non-Christians alike, John 3.16. Today, in NFL stadiums all over the world, somebody's going to be holding up that sign, John 3.16. Right? Tim Tebow put it under his eyes, you know. And we talk about charity. We talk about a charitable heart. What does it say? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see the nature of God. The nature of God is compassion. The nature of God is to be charitable, to see the needs of people and long to help with those needs and actually act with the resources. God bankrupted heaven. In his charity, he bankrupted heaven. When there was nothing else that could be done, not animal sacrifices, nothing could sustain, nothing could handle what needed to be done to deal with the chasm between man and God, that could deal with the debt that mankind had. Nothing could be done. Nothing could satisfy it. What does he do? The most precious of all, his son. He sends his son, the charity of God, Jesus Christ. And he pays the debt. And the third thing that I see here, the compassionate, the charitable people and from the sheep. They're cordial. Now, oftentimes when I think about cordial, somebody asks, well, how was it? Oh, it was cordial. It's, eh. We got along, right? Sometimes that's the way we use that term. But if you look at the word cordial in its original text, it means this, courteous and gracious, friendly and warm. And it comes from a Latin term that means of the heart or heartfelt. When we talk about cordial, we're talking about somebody that's very hospitable, somebody that's very courteous, somebody that's very inviting, somebody that's very warm, like a heartfelt gesture. They live from a heartfelt place. 
You look at this, this description of these people. They were visiting when they were sick. They were in prison and they're visiting. They're, they're, they were strangers and they welcomed them in. This is, an idea, this is the idea of being cordial, that there's this, this invitation, this hospitality, if you will, towards people. This is the natural flow of mercifulness. Remember, mercifulness distinguishes the righteous from the religious. Luke chapter 7, verse 34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is what they said about Jesus. Jesus was so cordial with people that the religious people, the Pharisees, declared him to be a drunkard. Now, let's be clear. Jesus was not a drunkard, right? Jesus was not just like, hey, que sarah, sarah, what will be, will be. Hey, you keep on sinning. I'm over here. I'm good. It's all good. He was at the party condoning everything that was happening. That's not the picture that we have of Jesus. But we do have a picture of Jesus where he was comfortable among people who were sinful. And that he was cordial to them, that they could find themselves in his presence and sit with him and talk with him and dine with him. The people who were most uncomfortable in Jesus' presence were the people who thought they were the most spiritual. The most religious were the ones who struggled in the presence of Jesus. That's why they killed him. It's interesting. Jesus was a cordial, heartfelt. Why? Well, Scripture tells us that when they challenged Jesus, how dare you? You're, you're dining in a tax collector's house? You know, he says, went to see Zacchaeus. He went to eat at his house. You, you're going to dine with a tax collector? With sinners? What is Jesus' response? Those who are righteous don't need a doctor. It's those who are sick that need it. I didn't come for the righteous. And really, you could say in that, I didn't come for the self-righteous. I came for those who were sick. I came as a healer. Jesus was very cordial, heartfelt, longing, welcoming people in. Why? Because it's when he welcomes them in that there's the opportunity, then for, then the opportunity then for them to become a part of his kingdom. We doing okay? That's why I sometimes struggle, and I talk about this at our church all the time, about the, the culture war that Christians try to, present. I think it's manufactured, but some people think it's real. And what I mean by that is this us against them. Well, we're good godly people, good godly American people, and you are bad, sinful American people. And, and so we draw these lines in the sand that creates this us against them mentality. And don't get me wrong, there's things that the kingdom of God talks about, okay? I'm not anti-Christian living and morality and that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. But when we go us against them, all of a sudden, the doors are slammed and we're no longer being cordial. We're no longer welcoming people in. We forget that we are one of them sans Christ, right? That we are a sinner without Christ too. That we are just like them. The only thing that has changed us is Christ in us. And my problem is when we create this war, we are no longer being cordial. We're no longer inviting them in. We stand over here righteous and good and godly and they're over there, them sinners. Jesus never drew that distinction. 
Jesus was found more with them than he was found with the others. Cordial. Why? Because Jesus functioned and flowed from mercy. The Lord is merciful, slow to anger, rich instead, abounding in steadfast love. So the Beatitude says, look, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They shall obtain mercy. And I think that this is important to notate as I wrap this up. Important to notate that some people have taken the scripture and turned it into a very works-based mentality that I must give mercy in order to receive mercy from God. So if I'm not merciful towards others, then God will not be merciful towards me. But there's a lot of scripture in the Bible that contradicts that idea, that we're not saved by works, but by grace alone, right? So I can't give enough mercy, and if I give enough mercy, then I will obtain or receive mercy from God. In reading it, what it really better says is that, that mercy is not the root. Me being merciful is not the root of my salvation. Me being merciful is the fruit of my salvation. Jesus is the root of my salvation. Everybody with me on that? And so in essence, what it's saying is like, I will be merciful because I have received mercy. The fact that I have been so forgiven and so set free from my sinful state, that mercy has been given to me, the natural fruit of that is that I will be merciful towards others. That I will be giving of mercy. So in regards to our salvation... Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is not a work-based idea. It's not a, if I'm merciful enough, I will receive mercy from God. Now, when it comes to our relationship with each other, there does become this sort of idea of this law of reciprocity or the law of sowing and reaping, in that when I'm merciful towards people, generally I'll receive mercy back from people. Not in salvation, but in relationships with people, when we're merciful with people and we display mercy like the kingdom of God dictates us to do, generally what happens is we sow mercy, we reap mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's my challenge to us today is that we continually find ourselves rooted and grounded in Christ and overwhelmed by his mercy towards us. And as we find ourselves overwhelmed by his mercy towards us, we in turn will be merciful towards others. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is alive and it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that your word has the ability to go in and change us and transform us. It's not just ancient text on a page, but it is living and it is breathing and it's active and it has the ability to change us. And so, Lord, we pray, let us be changed in your presence today. Let us be transformed by your presence today. May your word go deep into our hearts and may it stir in us, may it break in us, and may it cause us to become more like you, Jesus. We're so thankful, God, that we could join together. We're so thankful, God, that we can sit under your presence and hear your word and worship you together. Lord, we pray that it doesn't become just a duty that we do every week, but Lord, that we would be in awe 
of your grace and your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.